Ahoy there, welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with stories beyond the horizon. I'm Matt Valor, this is episode four. I am podcasting from a shed in Cornwall in the very southwest of Britain and there's quite the wind blowing, buffeting around, so you might hear a bit of that in the background. I don't know if a flood is brewing. Well, maybe that's for next episode, because today we are in that little story sandwiched between the creation of the world and its destruction. Yep, this is the story of a murder. It's Cain and Abel. But first, a big shout out to all of you, you wonderful listeners. This podcast has now been played in every continent in the world. So that was a happy moment. Thanks for being part of this. We love getting feedback, so keep that coming. You might also have seen that on the website, BiblePirate.com, we launched the unauthorized version of the Bible, which is basically me trying to translate or retranslate the Bible into English. That's a fun, if ludicrously ambitious project, but we're going to give it a fair go anyway. In order to make this podcast manageable, and we're going to go through the whole Bible, so it's a massive project, we're going to divide it up into series. So this is series one, going through the prologue to Genesis. Uh, the final episode of this series will do an overview of these first 11 chapters. And when we do that, we'll be looking at the story of Cain and Abel from the perspective of the birth of civilization. Cain representing agriculture as the foundation of the city-state, and Abel the marginal shepherds, the nomadic pastoralists on the edges of empire. But for this episode, I want to look at the story of Cain and Abel from a much more intimate perspective. To tell the story of two brothers fighting for approval, to explore the desires that shape our human experience and our sense of competition, to explore how violence gets perpetuated, and particularly in the light of the last episode, to continue to narrate this story in terms of gender. The question raised by the previous episode is whether Eden is good or bad. Is Eden paradise lost, the primordial unity of all things that is shattered by human innovation? Or is it the slightly creepy matrix world governed by Yahweh on behalf of the Elohim, in which Eve takes agency to pursue knowledge and wisdom and breaks out of this system of control in order to be liberated? Is it paradise lost or is it coming of age? We told in the end a truly disturbing story of the violent repression of women by men on behalf of the gods. A story that requires challenging and resistance, but one which we see played out day in, day out in our world. I want to read Genesis 4 and 5, two chapters structured almost entirely around the narratives of men excluding women almost completely from their narrative as the male response to the exclusion from Eden of Genesis chapter 3. So in this story, Eve gives birth to a son that she calls Cain, and then to another she calls Abel. Abel is a shepherd and Cain farms the earth. So Cain brings some crops of his fruit and grain to Yahweh as an offering, and Abel brings the fat of his firstborn lambs. Yahweh accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. Cain is very angry and calls his brother out to the field and kills him there. So let me read my translation of what happens next. Yahweh said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? How would I know, said Cain. Am I my brother's shepherd? Yahweh sighed. 
angrily. Listen, your brother's dam, that's blood, is screaming to me from the Adama, that's earth. You are cursed by the earth, which has soaked Abel's blood from your hand. When you farm the Adama, it won't yield to you. Instead, you must become a nomad. This punishment is more than I can take, said Cain. You have forced me apart from the ground so that I will be hidden from your face. I shall be forever on the run. My life is already over. Not so, said Yahweh quietly. Was it defiant whisper or defeated sigh? And taking up needle and ink, he tattooed Cain's face, saying... Whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times in return. Then Cain left Yahweh and settled in the land of wandering east of Eden. So then the story continues where Cain has children, firstly a son called Enoch, and he builds the first city and names it Enoch after his son. And then Enoch's great-grandson is called Lamech, uh, who has two wives, Ada and Zelah. And Genesis 4 records this song that Lamech sings to his wives, which I've retranslated in this way. Ada and Zila, listen, I'll tweet this. This story is tremendous, the best rated tale. This kid I'll call Rocky has wounded me bigly, so I'll wipe out his people to prove I'm a male. Cain might take vengeances seven times, but Lamech's big hands punch back seventy. And then Eve gives birth to another son called Seth. And then chapter 5 is a genealogy, the generations from Adam to Noah. You can find the full retranslation of these chapters on the BiblePirate.com website under the unauthorized version. So with Eve the hero of chapter 3, but now by chapter 4 reduced to a bit part player, the question becomes how will these men respond to the marginalization and violent oppression of women? Now, at the basic story level of the text, there is no response. Men don't even seem to acknowledge the presence of women in this particular part of the story. And in response to expulsion from the garden, neither Cain nor Abel are protesting against Yahweh. They simply bring him an offering. And his decision, for which no reason is given to accept Abel's offering but to reject Cain's, produces this violence which results in a curse, but it is not a curse given by Yahweh, but simply acknowledged that the ground itself, soaked in blood, calls out a curse to Cain. And yet there is a subtext to me that runs alongside the Hebrew play on words that mixes blood with earth. The language of Genesis 2 and 3 that draws the Adam, the earth creatures, from the dust, now mixes the Adam with blood. And blood is the archetypal symbol of both life and death, the pumping heart and the spilled blood on the ground. It is also integral to the birthing of human beings, to the female biological cycle. Eve, the mother of the living, embodied in the earth that bleeds, curses the violence of her sons. This is to read Eve back into the story, against the grain of the narrative, against, from what we have imagined so far, the narrative intention of Yahweh. Unbeknown to him, he has spoken on Eve's behalf. The French philosopher of anthropology, René Girard, proposed his theory of mimetic desire and the scapegoat 
as a way of describing how humans compete as a result of our inbuilt desire to copy one another. Mimesis is the same root word from which we get mimic. It means to copy. When I desire something, that object becomes desirable, and so you desire it too. Soon we fight each other over it, and in the end we can't remember what we're fighting about. We've lost sight of the object of desire. Instead, our norm is violence. Into that situation, says Girard, human cultures propose scapegoats. Vulnerable, often marginal outsiders who can take onto them the violence that the community suffers. And by externalizing it in the form of the scapegoat, the community itself is cleansed and has momentary reprieve from the cycle of violence. Girard looked to the Cain and Abel story as the earliest example in the Judeo-Christian tradition of the scapegoating mechanism at work. What's unique about that tradition, according to Girard, is the fact that the innocence of the victim is exposed. It is made plain, whereas in the contemporary societies around Israel at that time, as indeed we might say happens today, it's never admissible to acknowledge that a vulnerable, marginalised person or community is offered as a scapegoat. But in the biblical account, that scapegoating process is made transparent. The innocence of the victim is acknowledged and as a result the sting is taken out of that cycle. Now when Girard reads this narrative he assumes that Abel is the scapegoat, the innocent who is murdered by his brother Cain. But the story leaves open all kinds of space for our imagination. I mean we don't know what Cain and Abel's relationship was like before this moment. We've no idea what Yahweh said to Cain or Abel at the moment of the offering, or even why they bought it in the first place. In the classically sparse approach to storytelling that is Hebrew literature, we're left with space to fill in the gaps ourselves. So what if we imagine for a moment that Abel is not the scapegoat? And the scapegoat is in fact Cain. What if the curse of Cain is the perfect excuse for the gods to scapegoat him and send him away? In psychology, the double bind is well understood as a condition that produces violence. The double bind occurs when two communications conflict and the person on the receiving end of those communications is not in a position to challenge the authority of the communicator. But it's more subtle than that as well. The classic example of the double bind originally given when the theory was developed was of a boy in a psychiatric institution and the mother who went to visit him. And when she arrived, he held back and she said to him, don't you want to give your mother a hug? So he ran forward to embrace her. But as he did, her body recoiled in disgust and he could feel it. And that night he tore the place apart because it was impossible to sort through those conflicting communications and advocate for any kind of agency in that situation. All Cain is doing is fulfilling his creative potential to tend to the land. Look around, we've given you every plant with seed, said the Elohim in chapter 1, and every tree with fruit, these are your food. 
In the garden, they lived with the animals. They didn't eat them. Isn't Abel the barbaric one for turning away from his vegetarian origins? Cain farms the land, brings the offering to Yahweh, and Yahweh rejects him. He's done the thing he was asked, but it was unacceptable. Cain is in a double bind, a bind that produces violence. Let's continue to think this story a little more on the lines of gender, because this is, it seems to me, at least one account of the structure of male experience. In countless different cultures, in different times and different places, to be a man involves ritualised violence. Male children are much more likely to be beaten by their fathers. Male friends are much likely to engage in physical violence as a form of social interaction. The pathway to male adulthood involves the repression of emotion and the acceptance of physical pain. The social bonds of male culture are held together by the potential for violence and often experiences of violence with other groups. What is it that we compete over? In this story, we have the classic answer to that question. The competition is for the father's affection. The affirmation that never comes. The possibility of presence with oneself that doesn't have to be perpetually deferred in order to repress the pain of emotional alienation. Perhaps this is the basic structure of men. Competition for affection and love. On the one hand required, but on the other proscribed. Love your father, but don't display your affection. Depend on yourself but know that you are not enough. These are the double binds of manhood which produce violence. For male readers of this story, we see our pathological condition written here. I wish there was an easy story for us to tell to move beyond this, but I have never heard it. But like Genesis 4 and 5 itself... This story I have told about the structure of male experience is one that is told only in reference to men, and that may itself be part of the problem. In our account of Genesis 2, in the last episode, we told a different story about the construction of male identity, or at least we implied it. Yahweh of the Elohim created the Adam, the earth creature, and tried to find a partner for it but was unable to do so, and so then puts the Adam into a sleep and tears a piece from its side from which it forms woman. And my translation of that was that it is a violent event, that the construction of woman from the Adam leaves man. And so man understands his self-identity as having lost something, as having woman taken it from him. I suggested that is an origin myth for our time where men are struggling to work out how to imagine an identity which isn't defined by loss. For many men, the empowerment of women in our society is the equivalent of being emasculated. As a woman becomes a subject, the man feels that something has been taken from him. And this is the construction of male identity, which is such a vital story for us to be able to understand and tell in our society today. Not to hold it up as a model for the future, but simply to understand how is it that we got here? 
What story makes sense of our present? Because if we can't tell that story, how do we tell any story that takes us to the future? In that sense, then, it is not just Cain that is a scapegoat for the gods and their confusion, the confusion that produces the double bind. But Eve represents the scapegoat for men as they collaborate with the gods in the oppression of women. Women must sacrifice agency so that men can be appeased. This is a scapegoating story that must be exposed if we are to stop the cycle of violence. Eve is innocent. All she did was take the fruit that brings knowledge of good and evil. She should be celebrated. We must turn elsewhere to find salvation from our violence. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks of the problem of toxic masculinity and a challenge to men to address this, for us to take responsibility for our own social networks and to call out sexist, derogatory behaviour or language where we hear it or see it. Though often easier said than done, that's a challenge worth taking seriously. But I sense that behind this narrative, there is a real confusion and difficulty for men. The actress Emma Thompson gave an interview in the wake of the revelations about Harvey Weinstein, where she referred to the problem of toxic masculinity. But she, what she actually said was masculinity and then corrected herself to say toxic masculinity. And to me, that small correction highlights a problem that it seems to me is faced by men in our contemporary culture, which is that there is no version of masculinity which isn't considered toxic. Which is not to say there's no version of being a man which isn't considered toxic. You know, I can be a caring father, a generous co-worker, a supportive friend. The problem is that these ideas of being a man aren't really part of a historic understanding or association with masculinity which is much more about physical strength competition protection and the idea of protection is problematized by its power dynamic to be the protector means first of all to be the more powerful and that's where the problem lies as the space of the feminine has increased to include strength and resilience and courage so the space for the masculine to operate in those kinds of ways is confused. So there is, of course, a toxic masculinity which abuses that power, but there is a problem at the heart of masculinity anyway, which is that it carries too much power, even if used well. So we either scapegoat Cain as the toxic man, or Eve, whose quest for agency is seen somehow as a war on men. What story can we tell to find a future? Perhaps a pathway from here is in fact found in this story of Cain and Abel. The very first line of chapter 4 is normally translated, and Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son. It's a Hebrew euphemism, which understandably people have assumed refers to a sexual relationship. But the actual word that's translated as knew to know his wife, is another that has an ambiguity to it. A literal way to translate it is that Adam saw and understood Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Just as there is no knowledge of good and evil without Eve, so there is no future 
It is the woman who births it, even if she is marginalised within the text. And for the man to see and understand the woman is the beginning of a pathway forward. In this story, that takes us back to the relationship between the Dam, the Adam and the Adama, this central Hebrew wordplay that structures the beginning of the story. The Dam is the blood, the Adama is the earth, and within those, from within those, comes the Adam, the human. To see and understand Eve in this story is, as we said earlier, to see her in the ground as the earth that bleeds, the earth that conceives, the earth that births. And in doing so, we have a way to tell the story of men, which is not that men are men because women have taken from them, but that men are men because they have been taken, taken from the earth, separated from it. That is the central framing of these whole two chapters of Genesis. They are on the land as a result of the curse of Adam, which is that he will be separated from it, forced to toil against it with difficulty. As a result of the violence of men, Cain receives the curse from the earth. And the very end of chapter 5, which is the genealogy of the generations from Adam to Noah, has Noah's father, also called Lamech, say of his son that he will bring relief from the curse of the earth. The separation of men from the earth is the framing background to these two stories. And to see and understand Eve, the woman within the earth, is the beginning of a pathway to healing. It was Transgender Day of Remembrance on the 20th of November, which is the day that we collectively remember those who have been murdered as a result of being transgender. If we ever wanted an example of people who are scapegoated, then the transgender community regularly suffer extreme violence at the hands of our communities who are unable to resolve our own confusion and struggles about gender. Writing on the Transgender Day of Remembrance, Rachel Mann, who is a priest in the Anglican Church uh, and identifies as transgender, wrote these words uh, in an article I'd highly recommend reading. Uh, you can find it on the Rachel Mann uh, with two N's blogspot.blogspot.co.uk. Most trans people I know have thought more deeply and carefully about the possibilities and aporia of identity than most non-trans people. That phrase, the possibilities and aporia of identity, is a really powerful one to me. That identity does have possibility beyond the sense of fixedness, beyond the sense of givenness by which we so often encounter our own and others' identities. But also the idea of aporia. And aporia is like an internal contradiction that can't be resolved. It is, to me, the very definition of the psychological effect of the double bind. And yet the contradiction inherent in the aporia, according to the philosopher Jacques Derrida, is precisely the undecidability that creates the possibility. 
It is the impossibility of saying for certain which creates the possibility of constructing something new, of reframing, of transitioning, of movement, of becoming. What the transgender community explores better than the rest of us, but perhaps if we see and understand, then explores on our behalf, are the irreducible, unresolvable aporia of human identity that affect all of us, perhaps some people more than others. But we are all struggling to make sense of ourselves in a world that wants to define us one way or another, set us within one story or another, make us man, make us woman, make our offering acceptable, make it unacceptable. This to me is the gendered dynamic of the gods. Adam was trans before Yahweh tore Adam in two and forced humankind into an unsustainable binary existence. Where do we go from here? The translation theorist, Professor Michael Cronin, who is a leading voice in his field, explores the concept of transition in his book Eco-Translation. It's a general look at the subject, so not gender-specific, but to me it feels very relevant. He notes, as many philosophers have done, the nature of Western philosophy is to concentrate on the logos, he says the work of the Logos is to determine. The more the object is determined, the greater the sensation of the object's existence. The difficulty, he continues, is what to do or how to think about transitional states. We are so obsessed, in other words, with determining things as one thing or another, that the idea of talking about something as a process or a movement is actually very difficult to do. Michael Cronin continues by saying we have prioritised as a result ends over means. Our entire philosophical worldview obsessing over the naming of things also then obsesses about the end state, the final construction of being, rather than the means, the process, the experience, the transition by which we actually encounter life by which, crucially, we become. Cronin then turns to the process of energy to describe the experience of translation as a form of transition, a form of becoming. In most discussion about translation, the idea of moving from one language to another involves a loss, a, a kind of form of entropy, an inevitable passage of energy or meaning or something essential from the original. And yet, says Cronin, that denies the negentropic, the creative, the way in which movement and transition creates new energy, new meaning, new opportunities in the present. That the very process of movement is itself life-giving. In the context of rampant capitalist extractivism, where we draw resources from the earth to make whatever products we possibly can that we can just keep on selling, depleting the planet's resources in this constant quest for consumption. We prioritise the ends over the means and separate ourselves from the earth, from the Adama. But by paying attention to the process of translation, which is in its very nature an act of transition, we have the capacity to reprioritize the means, the becoming, 
the movement and so connect ourselves again with the cycles of life and death, not just entropic movement, the inevitability of death, but also the negentropic, the birthing of life. This to me is symbolized in this story in Genesis of the blood, dam, life and death, entropy and negentropy, given voice in Eve, the woman who calls from the ground, from the earth, from the Adama, that the process of transition embodied in the transgender identity of the Adam is not to be, but to become, not to assert man over woman or woman over man, or to assert the identity of man as one who lost out to woman, but to see in our connection to the earth the possibility of healing, of becoming something new. The gods continue to divide us. The gods continue to authorize the oppression of men over women. There is no way back to the garden. But we do not have to wander with Cain, whose way is vengeance, paying back seven times, his descendants paying back seventy. That is the way of the macho man who contests the size of his hands. If the rejection of ends over means is our path back to reconnection with the earth, then we must lose our obsession with the object, the object that leads to mimetic desire and violence, a particular challenge for men. At a basic level, this means losing our obsession with competition. But at a deeper level, it means giving up the quest to be a man. We have been taken, separated from a body that is becoming, from a body full of aporia, full of contradictions that are unsurpassable and yet in which the undecidability creates the possibility of becoming someone new. In that dialogue between Yahweh and Cain, when Yahweh tells Cain that the earth has cursed him, his only response is to send him away, to tattoo his face with a mark of vengeance. But there was another choice, not to go, to heed the curse of the earth as a call to return, to return to the Adam, to lose the obsession with the object that leads to violence and to embrace the cycles of death and life that live within the earth. We don't have to accept the enforcement of the alienation of men by the gods and those men who act on their behalf. There is a way back to the earth that bleeds and births in cycles of life and death. To me, this story offers the possibility of reimagining masculinity but not as a separate way of being men, but of integrating with the feminine, of new exploration, of what the queer earth offers as a pathway of becoming. There is a possibility here embodied and embedded in the Adama, the earth, of a way of being beyond violence, of a way of imagining our gender identity beyond just man and woman, of a transgender, transitional translation that enables our becoming 
in the world. Let me give the last word to Rachel Mann. Let us remember the dead, because we are them, and they are us. People longing to live, people with dreams, people bewildered and foolish and loving by turns. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Bible Pirate with more stories beyond the horizon.